Welcome to another Alliance Academy podcast brought to you by Alliance Advisors. I'm Brendan Henry, the Senior Vice President for APAC Operations here at Alliance. And in this episode, I'm speaking to Bryn O'Brien from the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, or ACCR. ACCR is a research and shareholder advocacy organisation where Bryn is the Executive Director. Hi Bryn, lovely to have you on. Thanks for having me. First of all, I wanted to start off just a bit of background on yourself and how you came to be involved with ACCR. Obviously, I know from your background, you are a lawyer, qualified lawyer, started out obviously with an interest in human rights. How has those interests led you into the role you're in now? Yeah, so my first job out of university was actually a lawyer in a big law firm doing corporate advisory litigation, particularly around corporations and financial services. So I did that for a couple of years. I didn't find it very interesting, but certainly kind of developed an affinity for the language and the, the structures of corporate power. And then I spent a, a few years practicing in the human rights and international law space. Eventually, in a roundabout way, I guess, led me to a, a master's, which I did in, in the US. And that was around the time of the development of the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. So I, I got quite interested in that space, in the uh, transnational networks, I guess, forming around the responsibility of corporations to respect human rights and the mechanisms we have at an international level to hold corporations to account for human rights violations. So that brought my, I guess, my interest in human rights, international law and commercial law all together in in one place. Uh, After that, I I spent a couple of years consulting to various different organisations and working for think tanks, looking at these issues around business, human rights and investment. Ultimately, that kind of by accident led me to to ACCR, where all of these things come together. So now um, I'm sure we'll get into this in the course of the podcast, but most of my work now is looking at corporate responsibility for decarbonisation and, you know, climate change certainly is the greatest human rights challenge humans are ever likely to face. If we don't prevent runaway climate change, then the, the human rights problems become really unfathomable and quite existential we're looking you know we're really looking at the right to you know shelter and food and clean water and so on so climate change is a human rights issue i think it's probably obvious to people now but a couple of years ago that seemed like a bit more of an obscure connection and obviously this this time of year is when accr generally makes the headlines you know in terms of especially in the afr there's you know a story there's various stories around uh, how you're engaging with companies and you know obviously proposing shareholder resolutions predominantly on climate, although in the past, you know, there has been specific ones on human rights or, you know, native native people's rights. You've obviously chosen engagement at a corporate level. Why that as opposed to government lobbying? You know, obviously an issuer can only work in the, I suppose, in the framework of what's available to them. And we saw that under the previous government, probably a little clearer. Companies were much less, more reluctant to move in these things when there's less ambitious targets set by a government. Why did you fo- why do you think focusing on corporates as a pressure or a lobbyist or pressure group, you know, that sort of thing, as opposed to government lobbying directly who set the framework? Yeah, so ACCR is a shareholder in major listed companies. While we're a not-for-profit organisation, we are shareholders. So the primary power that we have is in relation to the companies in our portfolio and the powers that we have or the rights that we have are formal ones set out in the Corporations Act. And so that, that's the structure that we use and the pathway, I guess, that we use for change, trying to engage with major listed companies. 
that's not to say we don't make our views known to 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 government and policymakers. We we do. We participate in public consultations that that government has. We make representations, I guess, to various different politicians of any persuasion who are interested in our areas of interest. But where we have power, as in real formal power, is in relation to the companies in our portfolio. Now, I want to go to the point at which ACCR obviously has done research and then goes to engage with the company. Now, your first step in towards engagement, what does that look like from your end? And what what particular do you want to see from a company when ACCR comes to engage? Because obviously it's not just, you know, file that email and let's forget about it because that's not going to work. What would you like to see more of? What sort of things energize you to push harder? So all of the companies, the, the Australian companies in our portfolio, we've held for a long time. So, you know, four or five years at a minimum. So the engagement is long-term, deep. We know the companies well. They know us well. The engagements evolve over time, I would say. So there are some some companies where we've had very adversarial relationships in the past where we now have very collaborative relationships. There are some companies with, with which we've had collaborative relationships with which we now have kind of pretty significant contest. So we are uh, starting to engage with global listed companies. We've got some companies in, in Europe and, and some companies in the Japanese market. And, and those ga- engagements are less mature, I would say. Yeah, so in, in terms of initiating an engagement with a company, what we're looking for is, I guess, the particularly on climate change, we're looking to initiate companies with major emissions footprints is the first kind of screen that we do. Then we look at the range of shareholder tools and the shareholder rights on offer and how they have been used or not used by other shareholders and whether there's an opportunity for us to add value in that space and whether there are institutions for us to collaborate with. So whether there is investor appetite in escalating an engagement with a particular company, perhaps there's been an investor engagement that's been going on for, for some years, but sort of hitting hitting a brick wall, you know, using uh, the kinds of tools and strategies that ACCR can bring to the table. So the more assertive strategies, including the possibility of filing shareholder resolutions, where they might be able to break through that, that barrier to, to see change. So they're the kinds of issues that we consider. Of course, we do financial and climate analysis a- across all of the companies that we engage with on, on these kinds of issues. And that analysis will often reveal opportunities for escalation that may not be obvious until you do that deep dive. So, you know, there's no, there's no real formula for, you know, an, an off-the-shelf engagement. It really depends on the company, the maturity of their approach to climate risk issues, the the sector that they're in and and the the strategy and the plans that they've laid out the the risks that they're exposed to particularly around stranded assets and liabilities and then you know in investor appetite to collaborate now obviously you're talking about advocacy and how it's in the last you know few years when you've gone into other markets that you know you obviously australia is i don't know what they're used to the, the type of advocacy shareholder advocacy you guys have pioneered but it really has evolved you know, from early on. And I think the, the complexity, and now ACCR publishes research on climate action plans. And as you say, that in-depth analysis and research, can you talk me through the evolution of that? And, you know, just, you know, the team is obviously growing. You have more capabilities now. And what that, that in-depth research, the deep dive, as you call it, you can do now, how that has helped the sophistication even of the resolutions you're putting forward. 
So this field of work, I guess, is still a fairly immature one globally. It, it's evolving into maturity, I would say, and and we've been part of that evolution. I've been in this role for almost six years, and with with that sort of time under my belt, I've been able to, I guess, what well, ACCR has been able to learn from what we've done and what others have done in the space. And when I say in the space, I mean the space of shareholder strategy globally. So that includes other organisations like ACCR, but it also includes hedge funds like Engine Number 1. It includes investor initiatives like Climate Action 100. I include all of those different kinds of players. But what we've been able to do is to take a long view, to, to learn from what has happened to date and to take those lessons to develop a much more systematic approach, I guess, to shareholder engagement. And that systematic approach sees us do prioritise, I guess, that deep dive financial and climate analysis where it's called for. There may be some companies where it is not necessary in an initiating engagement, but certainly where the engagement does become mature, it really does need to be there. And I think the investors that we collaborate with need to see that sophisticated research proposition. But similarly, you know, in reviewing the strategies that have been run in this space over the last five or six years, there are some other themes that come out. You need collaborative action, particularly collaboration between civil society and investors. And that's really, in my mind, the opportunity going forward and where the magic is going to happen when, you know, civil society can bring certain things that investors can't bring. Investors can certainly bring things that civil society can't bring, particularly assets under management, which is always a really important part of the the puzzle in this game. But the other the other themes that have come through is the real importance of uh, outcomes-focused company engagement strategy and disciplined negotiation techniques. So we now, I guess, uh, use all of those all of those tools in in our engagement with companies. And really, you know, the re- the, yeah, the reason that we have evolved is because we've learned a tremendous amount from doing and from watching others do and from learning from our collaborators over the last uh, five or six years. I suppose that question, which, you know, in terms of priorities, which comes first? Does it the court of public opinion or are investors driving the change? You know, which, which do you look to first for, you know, not inspiration, but where do you see, you know, the, the greatest advantage um, and to ensure that you're not uh, trying to swim against the tide too much on certain things? It's a good question, but I think the answer for us is fairly straightforward. We look for the greatest opportunity to reduce the greatest amount of emissions. <laughs> that's that's really where we are you, using shareholder strategy. So shareholder tools are only suited to a handful of situations that arise every year and a handful of kind of companies where, where our tool can be effective. So that's what we're we're looking for. Obviously, I guess public opinion and and perhaps the opinion of you know the writers of at Bloomberg and the Financial Times and, and the AFR, they're fairly important in terms of the narrative that sits around our work. And you know sometimes we're trying to shape that narrative actively. Sometimes we're jumping on the back of a narrative that already exists. But certainly our work is much harder where we're going against the, the grain of the narrative. And I think that's primarily in terms of how we activate investors. I think, you know, ACCR is is quite happy going against the grain of the narrative and sometimes that's what leadership requires. But if what we're trying to do is 
activate institutional investors to use their ownership powers to decarbonise companies in their portfolio, they are far more sensitive to the grain of public narrative than we are. So we need to be sensitive to it as well. Absolutely. Speaking specifically about climate change and, you know, there has been, there's a couple of topics I want to probably combine here. First of all, your hopes for a 1.5 degrees target and is net zero enough? You know, is is that what I suppose asset owners should be looking at? Uh, you know, I think across portfolios, uh, asset owners, you know, in effect, our portfolio wants to be net zero. But then, you know, if they are asking their investment managers who they invest in needs to be net zero, but then the asset manager is, you know, possibly doing a tick box exercise by sending letters to CEOs of all the companies in the portfolio, asking them to set a net zero commitment, when in fact, there should be a targeting of specific, you know, absolute zero or carbon negative companies in across a portfolio. Where do you think we're at at the minute? In terms of your question about 1.5 and the feasibility of that goal, I mean, we have, for the most part, the, the technology. Uh, what we lack is the political and market response. So what we're aiming to do is, I guess we, we're, we're active in both spheres, but we're primarily active on the market response side. Also, just want to note that, you know, 1.5 is better than 1.6 and 1.6 is better than 1.7 and 1.7 is better than 1.8. So we should, sometimes I hear this kind of response particularly in within companies and sometimes within the investment sector, that is totally the wrong way around. That, you know, if we're likely to overshoot 1.5, then we should be optimising for two. That's just totally the wrong way around. If we're likely to overshoot 1.5, then we should be, at, you know, escalating and accelerating much more aggressively all of our strategies to hold us as close as possible to to 1.5 to to just limit that overshoot and again we do have the technology we just don't have right now the the policy and, and market responses so we're active in that in terms of portfolio decarbonization look it's a it's a conundrum and i think what i anticipate will happen is that Portfolio decarbonisation will remain part of an investor response to climate change, certainly in terms of managing financial risk, but portfolio decarbonisation is unable to participate effectively in the management of systemic risk. So to give you an example, say you've got a single investor or a, a single fund that has two options for members to select in their portfolio. One is the Clean Green Fund that has you know, retailers and solar companies and um, pharmaceutical companies perhaps in it. The other is the Brown Fund that's a transition fund where the, the aim is to go out and buy the companies with the, the big, big emissions footprints but then put in place very strict KPIs around decarbonizing those companies, you know, which is the more Paris aligned fund? My strong view is that it's the, if, if it's done effectively, it's the transition fund. It's the, if the goal of the Paris Agreement is to reduce emissions, then the fund that's actively reducing the e- emissions is the Paris aligned fund. I think fundamentally Paris aligned investing is a kind of a nonsense concept that can mean whatever you want it to mean, but, you know, that that that's my view. So I think portfolio decarbonization was the the flavour of the month in in 2020. I think rightly it's falling out of favour at the moment. I think you also kind of asked a a question about 
what I would call ineffective engagement, where the engagement strategies of a fund might be limited to sending letters to CEOs or having private meetings without actually using any formal rights or undertaking any active escalation strategies. I would say that if it's held out as effective, but it's ineffective, so if, if an engagement strategy is sold to members as a decarbonisation strategy that has no real-world decarbonisation outcomes in, in the real economy, not in, not in a portfolio, then that's a form of greenwashing. So I think um, funds should be very sensitive to that. And I think we are seeing increased fund member sensitivity around that, you know, using engagement to greenwash. And effective engagement, what does effective engagement mean to you? You know, does it mean a movement of the dial or, you know, a commitment? um, Or does it, can it still mean those conversations that CEOs and investors can have around what, you know, what, what they're going to look like in a couple of years time, you know, what the strategy is? Yeah, I think, look, it means over over a certain time frame, and certainly right now in, in this moment, it means in the climate space, engagement that delivers real-world emissions outcomes that are material. So I would say that the engagement that has been done with AGL by a bunch of AGL's shareholders, including us, but also including the likes of Mike Cannon-Brooks and Brock Ventures and Hester for that matter, but the engagement that has been done by a wide variety of different actors in, in the investment and civil society sectors, that that engagement has been effective. And when I say effective, I don't mean it's totally finished. There's still work to do. But AGL a couple of weeks ago announced that it was bringing forward the closure date of its last coal-fired power assets by a decade. So that bringing forward of the closure date will result in up to 200 million tonnes of emissions that won't go into the atmosphere. So that that's what success looks like to us. Speaking about engagement, with, so a theoretical, if you were to engage with a company, let's say, and let's say it was a coal miner, let's say you went to engage with a coal miner and the coal miner said, we are not going to be part of the transition we will reserve money for uh, mine rehabilitation and we'll take advantage of the market as is, but we expect to be out of coal when the demand is zero. So in effect, by you know everything, it should be by 2050. We will return capital to shareholders where it is and by that point in time, we will cease to exist. We don't have, we're, we have skills as coal miner, but in our geography and where we are, that transition is not for us. Is that is that a plausible alternative for companies rather than everyone being part of a transition when those skills are not always transferable and the geographies are not always suitable for them. The only thing I would object to in that scenario is coal being around as a feasible business strategy until 2050. I think the date is much, much earlier than that. And certainly for coal miners and the the buyers of coal in OECD countries for, for energy use, that is much closer to 2030. So that's the only thing I would object to. I certainly think that there are going to be winners and losers. And if capital return to shareholders is a better option, as I imagine in many cases it will be, than disorderly stranding, then it should be absolutely on the table. I I really, I think we have to get serious about that. And, And that's the role, I think, that large transition funds that are explicitly set up with that mandate, that's the role that, that that they can play and that we need to see more of. Yeah, and I suppose that goes back to 
at the moment, we are in the middle of experience a disorderly transition. It is, right. you know, and as you say, there will be winners and losers. I think that is, you know, that's where we're at. We're going to live through that for the next little while. As far as a just transition, what tools do you have available to ensure that that also happens? Or can it happen in a disorderly transition? The term just transition is is used in so many different ways and in many cases badly misused in, in, you know, in bad faith by different actors. So let's just sort of brainstorm what those uses could be. So one is about jobs. You know, that's the kind of classic example is the, the one that you've put to me, the you know, the, the coal workers who, you know, will be out of a job if a, a coal mine closes and, you know, taking care of those workers and the, their communities is and should be on the table. But then you've got things like just transition also means that the transition to the, the way that our economies change in a transition to a low carbon economy shouldn't create its own injustices. So it shouldn't be exploitative of First Nations communities uh, in, you know, uh, looking for the minerals to, to drive the transition. That is, that is also very important. Then you have the kind of global north, global south justice as well. And I would say that this global north, global south justice proposition is badly misused by the fossil fuels industry in particular. There's that whole, you know, energy poverty argument that you know, uh, companies like Shell and BP certainly say, oh, well, you know, we need to get, sell our gas to India to drive their transition. Now, there's certainly some narrow space for that, but not in the way that those companies are expecting to grow in emerging markets. What we're seeing now is lobbying by the fossil fuels industry in emerging markets to lock in demand fossil fuels demand over the long term rather than to promote investment in uh, electrification and uh, storage and and renewables, of course. So there are a whole heap of justice considerations that go into transition, and I think this is probably where my background in the human rights space is is useful. There is always a a kind of a balancing that goes on, but really the the non-negotiable here is transition, like, you know, the, the classic phrase, there are no jobs on a, on a dead planet. There are no homes on a dead planet. Like we really are in deep, deep trouble. We need to guarantee a transition and we need it to be as, as quick and as orderly and as, as fair as possible. No, I will. We will move and we'll, this, will, this will be our final topic. We'll finish up on the current AGM season in Australia and perhaps where you've seen successes obviously you engage with origin regarding resolution to include financial sensitivity analysis and now climate sensitivity analysis in their financial statements yeah and they they have obviously agreed to that and the resolution has been withdrawn uh can you touch briefly on that and then also i would like your view on same climate just how that whole thing is evolving mm-hmm. and i suppose the the question that some investors are certainly asking themselves is whether that the idea of an of an advisory say on climate is a possible another avenue of greenwashing in that directors are you know abdicating responsibility for their own election i think i asked i asked this you know um to philip food in a previous podcast is actually a better way to hold companies accountable you know annual director elections which is a binding proposal on a director you know who's in charge of sustainability or, or whatever 
Okay, so perhaps I'll deal with the, the say on climate, the overarching proposition first, yeah. and then we can go into the company specifics. So ACCR, is, as you know, has been like the, the proponent of say on yeah. climate in Australia and now all of the major listed emitters provide a vote either every year or every few years to shareholders on their climate transition action plans. I would say the success of the mechanism, I can point to some successes of the, me- the mechanism, but it's, it's still not used to its fullest potential. It's certainly not a, a silver bullet, but nothing is. But I think the, the value of it is that in putting the onus on companies to give a routine vote to shareholders proposed by management, really it forces the companies to actually consider what more ambition that they can bring to the table at different moments in time. So for example, Origin is putting a climate transition plan to a vote this year. And we do think that that has had an effect on, you know, really focusing the directors' minds on their exit of exploration. We think that's a good thing. Now they've divested those assets, which of course doesn't do the whole job. Does it make it less likely that the Beetaloo will be opened up for development? Yes, it does. And we think that that, that is a good thing, that there's certainly still more work to do, more work for Origin to do in really exiting those offtake arrangements. I think similarly with, with AGL, AGL committed last year to put a climate plan to a vote this year and AGL has just brought forward the closure of its coal assets by a decade. So it is creating, I think, within companies a sense of momentum and uh, a sense of, of timing really and, and a need to make the bold decisions now in order to, you know, get their get their shareholders' views on those decisions in a, in a timely manner. For what it's worth, I mean, ACCR has recommended a conditional yes vote on Origins climate transition plan. So, you know, who would have thought that would happen? But but anyway, but here we are, and 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 we're very glad to do it. You know, recognizing the work ahead, but recognizing the progress that has been made. So, I think the same climate mechanism is being used. It's starting to be used, ironically, kind of well by companies but perhaps still not very well by investors and I and I note that that argument about the abdication of director responsibility I mean I, I don't I don't really understand the argument I guess I know where it's coming from it's coming from glass Lewis in particular I guess I I don't see that that director accountability and climate voting are mutually exclusive I mean there are other routine votes every year including the remuneration report where director accountability can be really squarely focused and, and you know, not to mention the, the election and re-election of directors. So, I mean, we have not seen in this market uh, director voting on climate at scale at all. We just, we haven't seen it. So I think that that argument is, is a bit misplaced. Um, and I certainly think that investors find the mechanism useful. As for whether, you know, the, the mechanism has lived up to its potential. No, but I'd point you to the 49% against Woodside's plan earlier this year. And I think that's a pretty big vote. And I think that if Woodside's directors don't present a plan or a strategy that is sensitive to that vote, to next year's AGM, I do think that their positions will be in question. I, I really do think the director accountability is kind of the next step. From my experience, there seems to be a geographical split between there is a real appetite in Australia for to have a say on climate. 
to have a say on it, to have input into it. Whereas it really, you know, driving from a North American investor perspective, they're not quite sure yet. Even Vanguard came out and said they weren't recommending it to portfolio companies as, you know, until it becomes clear what what is the end goal of a say on climate resolution. And I think, as you said, the Woodside one is an, is an extremely interesting in that investors voted in those numbers against the, the management proposed say on climate, but endorsed them as overwhelmingly as a steward of the BHP assets that they took on board by endorsing the merger so fully. And it's, it's right. it, 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 it seems striking to me that there was no correlation between the two. Yeah, look, it, it is it's really interesting. And I, and I would like to think that there could be some more consistency in the way that investors approach routine votes, approach management proposals, but there isn't. And, you know, to Vanguard and, and others who take that position, well, you know, I would love to see them voting down proposals that they don't think are good and I would love to see them be more assertive in director voting. But certainly we haven't seen that level of active stewardship from Vanguard uh, and from others in the North American market and there's only so many problems that you can present without solutions. Fair enough. Fair enough. Moving on to individual yep. resolutions that ACR, ACR ah, yeah. has up this year. Okay. So Origin, as I said, we've withdrawn our climate sensitivity analysis at Origin and we've recommended a conditional yes on their climate transition action plan. We've also got a climate sensitivity analysis and an affirmative lobbying resolution at BHP. On the climate sensitivity analysis, what, what that asks is for the company to disclose a 1.5 degree sensitivity analysis in its financial statements. This is something that investors have been calling for for years. It has been grossly overlooked by major listed companies worldwide and the intent of our resolution is to address that gap. We do think that a 1.5 scenario will have material impacts on uh, the value of these companies and that should be represented in the accounts. And so we're, we're simply seeking more information and we, we think that, that that's certainly that the nature of the information being sought shouldn't be difficult for the companies to come up with. On the affirmative lobbying resolution, so BHP is perhaps the well, it's the largest company listed on the Australian Stock Exchange and perhaps the most powerful company in Australia. Its nickname is the Big Australian. It has been part of you know, every policy debate relevant to its business in living memory and has been an active and powerful participant that is willing to throw its weight behind the policy settings that will deliver the best outcomes for its business. Climate change, however, is a conundrum for BHP because BHP say that 1.5 degrees is the best scenario for its business. They say that they stand to be a winner of rapid decarbonisation, but they are not yet throwing their lobbying might behind policy contests in Australia. They're behind behind that position, behind a, an affirmative decarbonising position behind in those policy contests in Australia. So we would like to see that happening. Certainly um, the oil and gas companies and some of BHP's industry associations are out there throwing their weight behind policy settings that will delay decarbonisation. We think that that, that that is a bad result for shareholders that does not adequately protect the companies or shareholder interests. So we have put that uh, resolution to BHP, which is 
you know, just the latest evolution in in uh, almost six years of engagement with BHP about its lobbying activities. The first resolution that we put was in 2017, and that called on BHP to review its so its relationship with the Minerals Council. You know, it's it's an evolution, but we think it is certainly in shareholder interest to support both of those resolutions, and we encourage other shareholders to do so. We don't have a, a resolution at AGL, but we do have an interest in AGL's climate transition plan, which we are in the process of, of analysing. We haven't formed a view on how we will vote, but you know, certainly a lot of progress has been made, but there is still much more to go to align with 1.5 and to take into account the market risks of decarbonisation being ever more rapid. But the real uh, contest at AGL is about board renewal. And again, we we have spoken to the uh, directors that AGL is putting up for election and re-election. We will be speaking to the directors that Grok has proposed for election and forming a view on them. But really, you know, that company has been through a crisis period in the last 12 months, particularly with the blocking of the demerger. And, and we were active in campaigning for that demerger to be blocked. And we, and we think it, a good outcome for shareholders is a single a company with a rapid decarbonisation plan. So we are focused on getting the right directors in place to be able to deliver transition on that extraordinary scale. Absolutely. It- certainly shapes up to be an interesting season as we get into the meat of it in the next six weeks. That is everything uh, I wanted to pick your brains about and thank you so much again uh, for joining us. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Alliance Advisors, please visit us at our website, allianceadvisors.com or you can find us on LinkedIn or Twitter.